those of us who have got a Bible and would like to um, find the passage that we're going to look at, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes, uh, book of Ecclesiastes, which you might find hard to find because it's not one that is commonly preached through. It's, a, it's pretty much halfway through your Bible, um, after Psalms and Proverbs, so you've got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And eventually we'll be looking at chapter 5, but not just yet. Um, I'll do a bit of an overview before then. So if you find the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll start from there. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes is, um, is looking at the world. I guess he's uh, someone who's coming with some wisdom uh, about the world. And he's establishing what's important in the world. And uh, what is, in, in his words, is meaningless. Um, in fact, you may have, uh, as a title of the, before the first chapter uh, in Ecclesiastes in your Bible, which is, is words that are added, uh, sort of subheading, it says, everything is meaningless. And, and that's what uh, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes um, comes to the conclusion of. He sees that life is short um, that you work hard, but what do you gain during your time on earth? Nothing new comes about, um, and he points out no one remembers you uh, after you've gone. Um, chapter 1 and verse 11 uh, says, There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. So uh, you could think yourself, you know, how many of us really know and remember uh, the people in our family. And you'd have to go a few generations, um, maybe our, our great-grandparents, and you think, I don't know. I don't know much about them. I remember speaking to my dad about his grand, uh, grandparents, and he didn't know their names. He didn't know their names. He, um, they died before he was born, but he didn't know their names. Quite soon after we die, we'll be forgotten by those who are left. Um, the, the author uh, tries a life of pleasure as well, and uh, he sees this too is foolish and meaningless. Chapter 2 and verse 1, I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. And he goes on, laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? He goes on and tries to find other things that will find meaning and purpose in life, but he doesn't find any. Chapter 2 and verse 10, um, he says uh, he, he tries working hard on, on great projects and actually in verse 4 it says I undertook great projects I built houses for myself planted vineyards and gardens and parks planted all kinds of fruit trees and he, he goes on and, and talks about that verse 10 it says I denied myself nothing my eyes desired I refused my heart no pleasure my heart took delight in all my work and this was the reward for all my labour Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He sees that doesn't bring anything worth value either. He considers living a good life by way of worldly wisdom, and uh, he sees that that's better than living a life of a fool, but in the end he says death will still come, and there'll be no difference. In verse 16 of chapter 2, for the wise men, like the fool, will not long be remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too 
must die. So I can tell you're already glad that you came here this morning. (laughs) But the Bible tells it as it is. The Bible doesn't pull any punches. Here we get a very sober assessment of life. But it's a very true assessment of life. Life, as it's lived by the vast majority of people on the earth, is meaningless. That is what life is like. We can search for meaning, and many people search for meaning all over in, the, in life. And in the end, it will evade us. It will evade us. We won't find it. Achievement won't bring the satisfaction we crave. Money and wealth won't bring it to us. We can work hard, but in the end, everything fades, everything dies, and so will we. And uh, that, that phrase, it's like a chasing after the wind, sums it all up. And I guess Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, has much to say to us in this time because a lot of people are blinded to the truth of this. Um, as I say, we would be, do well to listen to this man of wisdom. We can see some of that truth for ourselves today. We're beginning to see some of the foolishness of people who've put their hard-earned money into stocks and shares or even put your money in the bank. That there's no security in that these days. Money has halved. Shares have halved in price over the last few months or a year or so. There's no security in that. It's meaningless. I was talking to a car salesman the other day and uh, he was telling me that he was, uh, a man had come in the other day and traded in his Audi A5 uh, coupe and he'd bought it three years ago for £30,000. And uh, he was trading that in after three years, and he was buying a Skoda Fabia. Um, and so the guy said, why are you doing that? <laughs> Good question. I've just got rid of mine as well. Um, but bought another Skoda. Um, but he said, why are you doing that? And he says, I just can't afford to run it anymore. I can't afford to run the Audi. And this dealer was saying, do you know, all I could offer him for his Audi A5 was £5,000. He bought it three years ago for 30000 and he got 5000 back. And he just said, that's the way life is these days, isn't it? And yeah, that's the way life is. That's the way life has always been. We might be fooled into thinking times are good. We might be fooled into thinking there's, you can invest in, in shares and you'll find meaning in that, or life will always get better. But the reality will always come around that life is meaningless. It's like a chasing after the wind. But what about religion? Actually, surely these times are helpful in terms of people finding religion. Here is a quote from the Daily Telegraph sometime late last year. It says, rise in church attendance, sorry, rise in church congregation attendance is down to the economy. And And the article went on and said, thousands of people are turning to religion thanks to the recession, according to the Church of England. Congregations around the country have seen an influx of parishioners with church elders believing that the economic downturn has meant that people are rethinking their values. So we might be encouraged by that. We might say, oh, that's great, isn't it? You know, it's great that people are turning to religion. Well, I'm not sure it is. In fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes then turns to religion too. And it's this that I want to focus on today in a moment when we look at Ecclesiastes and chapter 5. You know, people might seek out religion as the answer to issues of life, but the, I guess the question is then, well, which religion are you going to turn to? 
And our self-centered attitude that we have in life says, well, we'll turn to whichever one suits us. We'll just find a religion that seems to fit us. We might even hedge our bets and try and have a bit of, of religion, a bit of God from each different, each different religion. Homer Simpson, uh, that great philosopher, summed it up. <laughs> it's different Homer. Homer Simpson summed it up by saying this. He said, I'm going to die. Jesus, Allah, Buddha, I love you all. <laughs> He's hedging his bets. What does, Ecle- what does the writer to Ecclesiastes say about this? We're going to read chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. Let's have a look at what the writer is saying here. Religion in and of itself is not a good thing because a lot of religion is about believing that there is a God and then we try and impress him or actually try and impress other people about how good we are. So religion might be about believing there's a God but we're spending most of our time trying to impress him by how good we are. And this writer here points out that God is not impressed. Let's look at what Jesus has to say about religion, and these are some scathing words that Jesus has to say. If you turn to Matthew chapter 23, this whole chapter is speaking to the religious people of Jesus' day. Matthew chapter 23, I'm going to pick different bits out. I'll start in verse 13. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven... In men's faces, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Verse 23, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, 
but on the inside they're full of dead men's clothes, bones, and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And finally, verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? This is Jesus speaking to those who are religious. He wasn't impressed. He wasn't impressed. You will not find stronger condemnation on the lips of Jesus to anyone else. And he's addressing it to those people who were religious, who thought that they were righteous. God does not want religion. So it's essential we get hold here of what is said in Ecclesiastes 5 about approaching God. We're going to see three things. The first thing that the writer tells us that we should do is we should guard our steps when we approach God. Verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. God isn't someone who we treat casually or lightly. You know, atheists have often said that people have invented God, that people just invent God to fulfill their own needs. So maybe people realize that their life is without meaning, and so um, there are things that they're unable to defeat, such as, such as death. Death is going to come to us all. So you think, okay, um, well, let's invent a God who's, who's a kind of superman, um, superhuman, who can rescue us from those things. So uh, let's make up a God, and he'll, he'll rescue us from death, and then that'll be all right. We don't have to worry about those things anymore. So that's what atheists often say, uh, that religious people or people do about God. They just invent someone to help deal with those things. But the only thing is that the God of the Bible is not the sort of God that you would invent. If you get to know the God of the Bible, the God who we worship, who would want to invent him? I mean, it's true that you might be able to find lots of passages in the Bible that can give you a nice warm feeling about God, but you actually have to ignore a lot of what the Bible says that God is like. For example, if you get a book like Leviticus, I wonder how many people have started to read through the book of Leviticus and then thought, oh, I can't, I can't read through this, this is just too heavy, I just don't relate to this, this sort of God. But this is who God is. We can't escape that this is the same God. And uh, the book of Leviticus lays down all kinds of restrictions and uh, elaborate ceremonies before anyone can come near to God uh, for, for different reasons. You can't, you can't come near to God if, you, um, if, if, you, if you've got an infection. You, you have to give a certain offering at different times. You can't come near to God for, for seven days if you're a woman who is, uh, is, is menstruating. There's all sorts of different uh, restrictions there and you think well, who's, who's this God um, you have to get your head around those things who would invent a God like that who would invent a God uh, that we find in 1 Chronicles 13 when we get a story of Uzzah who is struck down dead they're carrying the ark David and his, his men are carrying the ark of the covenant uh, ark of God back to Jerusalem back to the city of David and uh, the oxen that's carrying it stumbles. Uzzah puts out his hand to stop it falling in the mud. And God strikes him down dead in fury. Who would invent a God like that? A holy God who can't allow any sinful being to come into contact with him. We see, we see a similar thing in Leviticus chapter 10, actually. Um, we get a... Um, 
these, um, these things about how, we, how you're supposed to, the Israelites were supposed to bring offerings to God. And at the end of chapter 9, Moses and Aaron had, had come out. We'll read from 9.23. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of God appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions, which they'd offered, on the altar. And the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. But then you come to this chapter 10, Aaron's sons, Nadab, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them and added incense and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So they did what God was asking them not to do. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. Get a sobering moment. A sobering moment, similar to the one in 1 Chronicles, actually. The people have all been rejoicing before God and celebrating with all their might. And then suddenly, God is dishonored by an action. And God says, I will show myself holy. I will be honored. And he strikes people down dead. This is the son, the sons of Aaron, the leaders, the brother of Moses who was leading these people. And suddenly they die. No warning, no, don't do that. We'll just be careful. He strikes them down dead. Who would invent a God like that? Is it that God is temperamental? Is it that God doesn't like things done in a certain way, has got issues with certain people? No. It's that God is holy and awesome. God is a dangerous God. We see in the books of Narnia, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan, the lion, who's supposed to kind of be an allegory of, of God in these books, and he's described as being powerful and dangerous. He's, the children are told he's not a tame lion. Yeah, he's loving and good, but he's not tame. That's our God. Our God is loving, he's good, but we can't tame him. And how dare we try to tame him? Religion is a dangerous thing to get into because we, to approach God, we need our hearts to be purified and mended by the blood of Jesus. We need to come and worship him knowing that our access to God is granted entirely, entirely on the basis of Jesus' access to God. One for us by his perfect holiness. That's the only way we can approach God. That's the only reason we can come. Nothing of ourselves entirely due to what Jesus has done. Yes, we can come. We've been hearing this morning the wonderful truths that we can approach God. We can come into his temple. We're his children. That's all true. But let's not forget who it is that we are worshipping. We are worshipping a holy and powerful and awesome and dangerous God. And when we start trying to impress God by who we are or what we have done, or what we can do. And we're just throwing all that Jesus has done back in his face. Let's come reverently and humbly in the face of God, knowing who it is we're dealing with.
and not coming casually or lightly, as it says in verse 1. Don't offer the sacrifices of fools who don't know that they do wrong. And I believe we can all be in danger of this casual approach at times. I want to highlight a couple of things, but let's all apply this to ourselves. And I know as I've been preparing, I've been well aware of areas where I can just be too casual about God. Those of us maybe who are in fusion, young people, maybe who've grown up in the church, maybe you've grown up, your parents are Christians, you've always come along, it's just become what you've known. Let's be aware of who this God is. Let's not just come in casually and sit at the back maybe and just, oh yeah, I'll take or leave it, doesn't matter, I'll be, I'll be cool about it. Or just, oh well, when I go to New Day, then I'll, yeah, we can enjoy God there. I said, I don't want to appear too interested in God. It's a dangerous place to be if we're thinking like that in our minds. If we're thinking that church and, and God is just, is just safe or even a bit boring. Dangerous place to be. We don't want to relegate God to something that can be fitted into our lives as long as nothing else gets in the way, as long as there's no football match on or something else that we'd rather go to. Yeah, we'll come and we'll worship God, yeah, as long as, as, long as it fits into my life. God is our heavenly Father. God doesn't want us to treat him casually or just fit him in when we have time. Maybe relationships with your own parents are, are casual now. I guess relationships have changed over the years and often people's relationships with their parents are quite casual. You know, a bit more, bit more matey, a bit more, you know, we just get on. And it's good to have that love and that acceptance, obviously. But maybe there's not so much of the fear and respect that previous generations had. And so we, so we just think, well, we'll treat God like that. God doesn't want to be treated like that. He won't be treated like that. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we need to fear God. We need to fear God. We need to bring our children up to know the fear of God too. Not just tell them how much God loves them. If we only, and God does love them. God does love us. But if we only tell our children how much God loves them, then they won't grow up thinking how awesome and great God is. They'll grow up thinking about how great they are because God loves them. Yes, God loves us, but God is an awesome and fearful God, a great God. I was saying to Ellie and Bradley this morning that I was, when I was having breakfast that I was going to be speaking and I said, I'm going to be talking about God. I said, I want you to listen to what I say about God. hope you're listening, guys. And, and Ellie said, oh, you'd be saying that God is good. I said, well, God is good. But I'm not just going to be saying that God is good. I'm going to say that God is awesome and mighty. And we need to fear God. We need to fear God. And many others uh, of us can come here on a Sunday and come into relationship with God and embrace uh, religion without even thinking that we, that we 
that we set out that way. We can just become religious. We start to think about what it is that we can do and how we can be a better Christian and how we can do this or we can do that for God. But in the end, that is entirely focused on us. And then pride comes in and then we start to judge others and think, well, we're better than them. Oh, we've learned those things. We know those things. We can sit here on a Sunday morning and and just be unmoved. We we can think of people who who we think, oh, yes, that that person needs to hear that. Oh, my wife needs to hear this. Oh, oh, this person needs to hear this message. But we don't think, what's God saying to us? Maybe we can't even remember the last time that we responded. And God moved our hearts. It can come in subtly. And it can get in in subtle ways as well. And, and easily we can, we can start to sing things and say things. I think songs, just be careful what we're singing to God. Songs are, songs are out there. There's songs on, on the New Day albums that I, I listen to and I just think, oh, I don't think I could sing that. I think it's a bit dangerous to sing that. There's one on, I think there's one on this latest New Day album. The words go like this, what can I do for you, my God? I want you to know my heart is yours. It's not a question of what you can do for me, but what can I do for you, my Lord? You think, no, it's entirely a question of what God can do for us. And it is absolutely not a question of what we can do for him, because we can do nothing. But yet we can sing those words, oh yeah. I've had to catch myself because since I've been preparing this, the song's quite catchy. And you end up singing it thinking, no, that's not what I want to say to God. I want to say, God, it's all about what you can do for me. And I come humbly before you knowing I can bring nothing to the table. Acts 17.25 says, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he gives, he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. The Bible says God is not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. He's God. So let's be guard our steps when we go near to the house of God. Verse 2, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Secondly, the writer is saying don't be quick with our mouth. Don't be hasty to utter anything before God. Don't make light promises. Verse 2 pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. I don't know if you've noticed, actually, how the people who are, who are, this, this, who are, people who are worth listening to are often those who don't say much. I reckon uh, in every core group there is someone who doesn't say a lot but is really worth listening to when they speak. And uh, maybe there's plenty of people there who are very quick to come out with their opinions on something, maybe even who dominate at times. And uh, I, I know this is something I've got to hold my hand up to and say that I can easily be like this. I can easily be quick to say what, hopefully not what I think, but I can easily be quick to speak. Hopefully it's what God thinks, but I'm aware it can easily be. Just what I think. But then there are those who've got such gems, such pearls of wisdom, because they've spent time not just speaking, but listening to God. Often those people don't even think that what they have to say is good. But when they start to speak, then I want to hear. 
So it's far better to listen. Far better to listen. Oh yeah, verse 1. Go near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. To be humble and to learn. I'm not, I'm not saying don't speak at all. Core group leaders are thinking, no! No one's going to say anything this week. <laughs> Sit there silently. Just listening. <laughs> what I'm saying is don't just go and share your opinions, your thoughts. Oh, I, I think this, I think that. Oh, I think God's like this. No. God's not like that because the Word of God says He's not like that. We, we, can, we can have a, a bit of a, a shoddy attitude towards God because we just pick up the, the attitude of our age, the democratic attitude where our opinion's as valid as anyone else's. And we think, well, I want to say what well, I, I think. This is my opinion on it. That's your opinion on it. And actually, we, we relegate it to our opinion is just as important as what the Bible says. It doesn't, doesn't make any difference. Or, or even towards the church, God's bride. We can say, oh, I think this, I think this should be the way. Well, God isn't interested in our opinions. He doesn't care what we think. It's his church. He gets to call the shots. He delegates leadership authority, yes, but to those of us who are then answerable to God for that. We will be judged by God for taking that responsibly. And only bringing what the Bible says and what the Word of God says. It's not about who has the best argued opinion. Who can get the most support for what they think should happen. People have, have come to me and said, Oh, I think, I think we, should, we should do things this way. I think we should arrange it, um, this sort of work in the church, like this. And you think, that isn't up to you. It's not your call to make. And that's not an arrogant thing of saying, oh, you, you get out of it because it's my decision. I'm going to do what I want. It's actually we want to hear what God is saying on this. And we've got proper authority which has been given by God to people who can lead and lead with godly wisdom and authority. And we pray for that. And please pray for us that we will receive that. But it's not about our opinions. It's not about, oh, I can, I, you know, I'm now an elder, so I can push my agenda through. No. We want to hear God. And we want to do what he says. Job gets it right. Job gets it right. In Job 6 and 24, he says, Teach me, and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. That's a good attitude to have, isn't it? Teach me and I will be quiet. Show me where I have been wrong. Let's humble ourselves before God. Also what the writer here in Ecclesiastes is saying is don't make rash promises. Be careful what promises you make. Be careful what you say to God. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Again, some of the songs that are about, I think, oh, let's be careful. And another, I'm not having to go at a new day album, because there's a lot, but I just think it can come in, in this kind of thing that, that can get hold of us as, as young people. Another song on the new day album. Um, these words, my God, I'll only ever give my all. Jesus, we're living for your name. We'll never be ashamed of you. 
our praise and all we are today. Take, take, take it all. Take, take, take it all. You think, yeah, easy to sing when you're in a group of people, when you've been there for a week and lots of people singing and praising God. And obviously they are good sentiments to have and things to aim at and say, oh God, yeah, I want to get to that point where we'll never be ashamed of you. But just to sing it and then think, okay, now, how many months after New Day? Is that what my attitude is? Is that what I'm saying? Can I say that I've gone into my family, into my school, into my workplace and said, I'm not ashamed. I'm never ashamed of God. I've never been ashamed of him. I've always I've said, God, take it all. It's all yours. We're only living for you. I'll only ever give my all. That's a big promise to make. I'll only ever give my all. I can't sing that. I can say, God, I want to only ever give my all. Peter boldly claimed something like that, didn't he? To Jesus. Matthew chapter 26. Just before Jesus was crucified. Matthew 26 verse 35. Peter says, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And it says all the other disciples said the same. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. That's Matthew 26, verse 35. And then the heading in my Bible above, verse 69, in the same chapter, Peter disowns Jesus. Easy to say, hard to do. Let's not promise and declare things to God rashly or lightly. Let's strive for those things. Let's not just say, okay, I won't do anything, I'll just, do, I'll just live my life, however. But let's not make rash and bold promises to God. Um, <laughs> some of us will be aware of a situation that's, that's been going on with um, someone in the church uh, who's, who's just lost their job uh, because they have not been ashamed of God. Because they've not been ashamed to stand up and say, no, I'm standing for God and not for what's, what you're asking me to do. It became a, a, a direct thing. They had to either choose God or, or the work. And they chose God. And I spoke to them on the phone. And uh, she said to me, oh, Mark, would you have made that? Would you have done that? I thought, I can't say yes. I said, I, I hope so. I hope so. But I can't say, oh, yeah, I definitely would. Because I know I'm human, and we're all human. And we'll come to the fact that God can meet us in our humility and our frailty and our humanness in a minute. It's not all bad news, but let's not just be rash in saying some things. Verse 4 as well talks about money. I think. (laughs) When it comes to money... Verse 4 says, when you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. Okay, money is, money is an example of what we can interpret this. Don't say that you're going to give something if you've got no intention of doing it. Ananias and Sapphira fell foul of that one in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, it sees that they sell some land and they bring some, but they hold some back for themselves. 
Now, there wasn't a problem in them holding back for, them, some, for themselves. The problem was they said it was all of it. They said this is all the money that was given. And God punishes them by killing them. This is a New Testament. This is New Testament. God punishes them by killing them. You know, they might have thought, oh, times are hard. You know, oh, actually, we haven't got as much money set aside as we thought we did. I know we said we'd give all this money to the apostles uh, from the land, but, but we'll just keep a bit back for ourselves. We'll just tell them it was all of it. You know, to make a pledge before God, a promise before God. We can, we can lightly do things and then just forget about it. You know, I, I'm aware at meetings where... Um, maybe, maybe there's an offering and I think, oh, I'll, I'll give something to this. And, you, and people say, oh, you can write a pledge. You can write a note and just say how much you're going to give. Oh, okay, I'll do that. Oh, I'll give so-and-so pounds. Put it in a bucket. You must remember to give it straight away. Oh, I forgot. Oh, yeah, circumstances changed. No, I'll, I'll just give 30 instead of 50, whatever it might be. You've made a promise before God. And God takes that seriously. Don't say, oh, my vow was a mistake. No, it wasn't. It was a promise before God. Now, you could well say this is all very depressing. And if we're trying to be religious, yes, it is. If we're here trying to be religious, if we have a religious spirit in us, if we're trying to impress God, if we're trying to impress each other, then it is. It's very sobering. It's not a light thing. And of course, we all fail on this. Of course, we all fail. But what God is looking for is a different attitude towards him and the things of him. Because the good news is there. The good news comes... Because our hope is found in Jesus. And we can talk about times when we say we'll do one thing and we do another. Or we've not kept our word before God. And we can hear what I've been saying and think, oh man, that's serious now. And maybe some of us have even remembered back now and are thinking, I did say that and I've not done it. And the seriousness of it is beginning to hit us. But the good news is that our hope is not in ourselves. Because we'll fail. Our hope is found in Jesus, and he kept his word. He kept his word, always. He went to the cross to die for our sins. Our sole reason for confidence, and it's absolutely certain and sure, is our sole reason for confidence is found in him, in Jesus. Finally, in verse 7, of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the writer urges us to stand in awe of God. He says at the end, therefore, stand in awe of God. This is the God of the Bible, not our made-up gods who don't deserve our worship anyway, but the glorious, awesome, majestic God who is all-deserving of all of our praise. Many people are fearful these days about different things, but Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12 and verse 4 who we should really fear. This is who we should really fear. Luke 12 and verse 4, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell. 
That's who we should fear, the living God. But as a Christian, as someone who has given their life to God, as someone who is saying, I am trusting solely in nothing else but the blood of Jesus to grant me access to God, to grant me a relationship with God, to bring me into the freedom that life gives me, to bring me into eternal life. That is all I'm trusting in. That is all I will ever trust in. That when we do that, we do not need to fear. We do not need to fear. Because this God, our majestic King, has adopted us into his family. And we can know him as our Heavenly Father. And Mel spoke earlier about our birthright. We can come into all of that because God has adopted us. And we can come into our birthright. We can come into all that God has for us because of him, because of Jesus. And let's do that and let's recognize that and let's not hold back from that. We have access to the throne room of God. We have the ear of the King of the universe. But he's far from our mate. He's far from our mate. And we should never lose the sense of reverence of who it is that we come before. Once we have this fear of God, we won't need to fear anything anymore. Because God is also perfect love. And 1 John 4.18 tells us that perfect love drives out all fear. God will deal with those of us who fear him in the most tender and gracious way imaginable. I thought that psalm that Wendy wrote, read out was fantastic today. Let's just end by reading some of these verses. Psalm 103, we read from verse 9 about God. About Verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love. Who for? For those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion. Who on? On those who fear him. God will deal with those of us who fear him in such a loving, compassionate, tender way. We don't have to go from here today feeling condemned. We don't have to go away feeling depressed. Because we can go away knowing that all our confidence is in God. Not in religion. Not in trying to impress people with how holy we are. How we stand and put our hands in the air, whatever it might be. But we come with a humility before God, knowing that we owe it all to him. But knowing we have access and freedom. We're not here to find religion. Let's not be casual before God. Let's stand in awe. He is God in heaven. And here we, on, here we are on earth. So we'll let our words be few.